Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. America has often been a divided nation. Battles at our founding were often at 50 paces. The Western ethos of half of America fueled so many divisions. Brother fought against brother in the Civil War. The Industrial Revolution gave us riots and death and violence. The Cold War and fear of communism gave rise to whole careers ruined just by accusations. The 60s didn't just produce great music, but led to the death of students on the safety of college campuses. But to use the often tired cliche of Wall Street, this time it's different. Or at least so it seemed. The divide today, fueled by social media, by 24-7 news cycles, and the decline of faith in our basic institutions, and a fear of hyper-rapid and deep fundamental change, has produced a kind of tribalism that undermines, rather than reinforces, all the central ideas of democracy and Republican government. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Daryl West. He is Vice President and Director of Government Studies at Brookings. He was the John Hazen White Professor of Political Science and Public Policy and Director of the Taubman Center for Public Policy at Brown. He's the author of numerous books on American politics, campaigns, and elections. And it is my pleasure to welcome Daryl West to this program to talk about his newest work, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's nice to be with you. It's a delight to have you here. One of the things that you point out, and I think it's an important place to, to start this conversation, is that the divide in the country today and so many of the issues that we'll talk about really didn't start with Donald Trump and really have very little to do with where we are politically today, but go much deeper than that. Talk about that first. I think that is the case. I mean, Trump has elevated the level of conflict, but it certainly did not start with him. In my uh, book, it's a 40-year political history of America uh, from Reagan to uh, Trump. So when you go from president to president, you can see how the conflict ratcheted up. Uh, I remember uh, in the uh, Reagan administration, I thought he was a polarizing figure, but then uh, now with 40 years of hindsight, we look back and the guy raised taxes in order to balance the budget. He supported immigration reform that included a pathway to citizenship. So he actually seems pretty mild by contemporary uh, standards. But as we move uh, from Reagan to uh, Clinton to Bush to Obama and Trump, it seems like the intensity level has really ratcheted up. So was it something that changed in our politics or was it a broader issue with respect to geography, with respect to the fact that more and more the country has moved from rural areas to cities? To, to What really lies at the core of the fact that with each president we have become more polarized? I think it is a combination of geography and economics. So the country's economy is divided between the coasts and the heartland. Uh, I had some uh, colleagues in uh, our uh, Brookings Metro program that did an analysis, and they found only 15% of America's counties today generate 64% of the country's GDP. So most of our economic activities on the East Coast and the West Coast and a few metropolitan areas in between, but much of America has been uh, left behind. Uh, and so those people are upset. Uh, they don't like the status quo. And many of those individuals ended up voting for Trump. So when you have uh, that type of uh, geographic divide uh, that also uh, dovetails with uh, a major difference between economic winners and losers, that's a recipe for populism, and it's also a recipe for extreme polarization. 
How much of the problem then lies at the fact that we've had this geographic division and that the inherent nature of our political system, the way it is divided, where power lies, is inconsistent with where the population is, that it doesn't fit with that fundamental point you made earlier that that only 15% of the counties are driving 64% of the GDP, that that's really inconsistent with the way the founders set up the government that we have, the way governance works. We do have a major governance problem now in the sense that our political system is based on geographic representation. You can see that with the Electoral College and also the Senate with every state, regardless of how big it is, having uh, two uh, senators. And with the geographic disparities, we soon may end up in a situation where the prosperous parts of America have 30 senators and the not very prosperous parts have 70 senators. And that really is a recipe for a constitutional uh, crisis because the uh, people with the 70 senators are just going to be really upset uh, that they're not doing well, that they're being uh, left behind. Uh, That is really a recipe for Trumpism on steroids. Trumpism may actually outlast Donald Trump himself just because of the underlying geographic disparities and the economic disparities that are linked to uh, those patterns. And when we take those economic and geographic disparities that you talk about and we add to them social media, speed of change, 24-7 news cycle, all of the, uh, and the cultural issues, which we've yet to really dig into, the cultural and religious issues, you add all of those as an overlay And it seems like a recipe not just for disaster, but one that can't be turned around. It certainly is a risky situation, and you're absolutely right in to highlight the role of technology and the role of uh, social media. Because uh, technology, I remember, you know, 30 and 40 years ago, we thought uh, technology was going to be a uniform good. It was going to level the playing field. create uh, more uh, digital democracy, uh, be more inclusive, and that hasn't really been the case. Technology has fueled inequality, but it also has fueled extremism. Uh, It's much easier for people with extreme viewpoints, whether it's extremism of the left or right, to find like-minded people, to organize, to feel legitimized because there are other people who feel exactly the same way. So if you live in a small community and you have some extreme view, it's often hard to find a like-minded person. But on the internet, uh, you can find uh, lots of uh, people who share your views regardless of how weird your opinions might be. It's, and it's just one click away, so it's very easy. So social media definitely have made the situation uh, worse. It's kind of dividing uh, the country and promoting extremism at the same time. And it also creates and fuels this anger that we see out there, which doesn't really seem to have an outlet. And that seems to be part of the problem as well. There is certainly a lot of anger out there. Uh, We all read things on social media that makes us really mad. Uh, Sometimes uh, that information is accurate. A lot of times it's not accurate, and people have difficulty distinguishing uh, between uh, what is false and what is accurate in terms of online information. So they'll read a story, and it just makes them angry. And then they see politicians not really responding to deal with uh, whatever issue that they uh, care about. It makes them very cynical about the uh, political system. They feel the system is rigged against them, that nothing is uh, happening, and then they start to turn to very extreme politicians. 
And, and not only politicians, but the kind of news entertainment complex that we have today feeds into that division. Absolutely. And certainly the news media play a major role in the sense that in a fragmented media universe, the only way to survive is to have a niche. And the best niches often are those niches that really grab people, that make people angry, that make people uh, read newspapers and uh, return to uh, internet uh, sites. And so the the way that the news media is structured today encourages more extremism uh, because if someone is uh, moderate, centrist, and pragmatic, it's hard to hold an audience uh, because that doesn't generate the same intensity as something that is more liberal or more uh, conservative in nature. What it also does is it seems to create two separate worlds, and this goes to, to some of the heart of what you write about using your own family as, as a metaphor for this. And, and this notion that people that live in, in these different worlds really have less and less and less in common, so it seems. That often is the case. And the book is a family memoir. So I grew up on a dairy farm in rural Ohio. So obviously a very conservative community, uh, both in terms of politics and religion. But then I taught for uh, 26 years at Brown University, a very liberal uh, institution. And then my immediate family kind of mirrors the political divisions that exist in America because my two sisters stayed in the rural community where I grew out, grew up, uh, married uh, local farmers. They're Christian fundamentalists, and they love Donald Trump. I have a brother who is liberal and gay, and he dislikes uh, Donald Trump. So family reunions always are very interesting in that kind of situation. And can you look at those family dynamics and find, or you, from your perspective, find common ground, see common ground that might be a roadmap to dealing with some of these issues, some of this divide? My family actually has been very successful at keeping it together just because even though the four of us disagree fundamentally on Trump, on politics, and we certainly disagreed on Obama when he was uh, president as well, but uh, we agreed a long time ago to agree to disagree. So we understand uh, that uh, we don't share the same uh, views of uh, politics, but we still discuss uh, politics. I make a point of listening to my uh, sisters, even when I uh, disagree with them. Uh, you know, we're in regular touch. I see them at least uh, once a year. We exchange uh, birthday uh, calls and uh, so on. So I think our family has maintain uh, uh, civil relations, but it, since the book came out, I've gotten lots of uh, notes and uh, emails from other people who talk about the differences in their uh, families, and sometimes that has not been the case, that sometimes the conflict becomes so intense that it really affects uh, the nature of uh, those uh, relations. In fact, there have been surveys showing that uh, one in six people today report that they have quit talking to a family member just because of political differences. So, uh, you know, Trump has certainly intensified a lot of the uh, conflict, but, you know, a lot of these issues uh, go back uh, decades, and it's starting to affect not just our politics, but social relations as well as family relationships. It seems that if we look at it historically, there were always those big issues that divided people or divided families. 
certain issues, whether it's abortion or the death penalty, you know, we could think of a few others, that you, you felt you were never going to really change anyone's mind. But now that's filtered down not only to every single issue that has become so politicized, even music and entertainment has become politicized, but we're starting to see, and, and, and I'd love you to speak to this because it goes to the heart of, of some of these governance issues that you look at at Brookings, that it's starting to filter down into state and local politics, which are becoming reflective of these same divides. Yes. No, I think you're exactly right on that. Uh, when you look at state and local uh, politics, uh, we're seeing the national polarization really start to affect a lot of uh, communities. Uh, and some of it is based on uh, geography in the sense that, you know, on uh, the West Coast, uh, states often uh, and people living there often tend to be uh, more uh, liberal. And so, you know, they see what's going on in Washington. They don't like uh, Trump's policies on immigration and separating uh, children from their uh, families. So they're getting really irate and then demanding that their local officials take a very uh, tough line against uh, the uh, federal uh, government. Uh, and then in the Midwest, you see the opposite reaction of there are uh, states that are much more in sync with uh, President Trump and the policies that he's uh, pursuing, and they want their local officials to support the president. So it creates a lot of intensity. It creates a lot of conflict. Uh, people are pushing uh, their local officials to uh, take action in the direction uh, that is most uh, prevalent in uh, that particular uh, community. And it's just making everything a lot harder to resolve, and it makes it a lot harder for the country to come together on any of these issues. And one of the other areas that it is impacting with respect to state and local politics, which is, it, it goes off a little bit of what we're talking about, but we're beginning to see more of it, is it's impacting how elections are run, how elections are conducted in various states and communities. Yep. That certainly is uh, the case uh, in terms of, there's so many election issues uh, that are now becoming contentious. So the role of money and especially the role of uh, big money in uh, politics is a big issue. Uh, there have been efforts to change uh, voter registration uh, rules uh, and ballot access uh, just to make it harder for certain people to uh, vote. So uh, that's been a big issue uh, in a number of southern uh, states, uh, for example. Uh, and then that creates a lot of uh, backlash when people see those efforts and they just think, well, that's voter suppression, that's uh, making it harder for people to vote. And that's really not how our democracy should be uh, running. So we no longer are facing divisions just on major policy questions, but the governance angle is important because we all should be in agreement on how our elections uh, should be conducted, but that is no longer the case. Uh, uh, the very rules on which uh, people can vote, the way elections are being um, uh, contested, the way campaigns are being run, that has become a part of the polarization that is dividing Americans. And part of that governance issue goes back to something we touched on a little while ago, which is this loss of faith in institutions that, that become self-perpetuating. There were big majorities that basically said, yes, we do uh, trust our government officials. 
And of course, today, that is a very distant a memory. Uh, today, the numbers have almost flipped over that more than two-thirds of Americans today say they don't trust government officials to do uh, what is right. People think the system is rigged against them, uh, that government officials are out for themselves. Uh, they're uh, not uh, pursuing the general interest and in trying to help um, most of the people in their communities. And when you have that loss of faith, that also fuels extremism, which then also uh, fuels polarization. Because if people think the system is completely rigged against them, they're willing to think outside the box, turn to leaders who are completely unconventional, who challenge the status quo, who don't accept uh, uh, norms that perhaps the rest of us uh, might accept. And so you can get a downroad spiral that can be very risky for any political system and any democracy. Do we have to think seriously about reframing the kind of government we have in the 21st century, given the realities of what we've been talking about? I think we are going to have to think seriously about reframing government because, you know, we know Technology is altering the landscape in virtually every uh, sector. It's, it's kind of analogous to what America went through 100 years ago when the country was shifting from an agrarian to an industrial economy. And, you know, it was a very contentious uh, time period. There was a lot of uh, conflict. There was violence on the front lines. Workers who were trying to organize were uh, getting shot uh, for their efforts. But if you think about the way that we dealt with that, we basically redid our social contract with one another. We made major policy changes to help people deal with industrialization. We developed Social Security, unemployment compensation. We added an income tax uh, to the Constitution in order to pay for new programs. We encouraged mass education uh, so that people would not be left behind, that they would be able to develop uh, new skills for the industrial era. And I think today, we're now facing a transition to the digital economy that is equally fundamental, and we're going to need to renegotiate our social contract to make sure people are not left behind. That people who might end up losing jobs because of artificial intelligence or robotics or various other new technologies, that they are able to get retrained so that they can get other types of jobs and new jobs that are going to be created in the digital economy. But we just need to reframe government and we need to reframe public policy for the challenges that we're facing today. Our country has done it before. It's not the first time we've faced a lot of change, but we're going to have to make some substantial changes in how we think about public policy. But what's different this time, and you, you touched on it before, is, is the level of tribalism, number one, but number two, the way it is so self-reinforcing because of technology, because of social media, because of the, the, the way news and information and even entertainment is divided up, that it, that it is more difficult to find moderate ways to address those issues now. And then with respect to the change, the fact that the change is happening so much more quickly, that we are in some respects trying to, to sew the parachute on the way down. Uh, definitely. And the technology change certainly is unfolding in a very rapid rate. I mean, just autonomous cars, they're going to be on the streets in major American cities in the next uh, one to two years. That's not something that's going to be 10 years uh, down the road. Uh, they're being road tested right now, uh, and they're going to be on the road for real uh, pretty soon. Uh, but there are 
dozens of new technologies uh, that are appearing from autonomous cars to artificial intelligence to robotics to facial recognition uh, technology. All of these are changing our economy, uh, having an impact on our political system. It's changing social relations. And in a time of mega change, people experience a lot of anxiety and a lot of anger over those uh, changes. You know, they don't know how it's going to affect them. They don't know uh, whether uh, their children are going to be able to find uh, jobs. And when people are anxious, they become more populist. Uh, they start uh, turning uh, to uh, politicians who play uh, to uh, that uh, anger. So that's something that we have to get a handle on. Just we have to recognize we're in a period that of major change and people are feeling anxious about those changes and it's going to affect the way our political system operates. What do you see in this regard with respect to generational divide? There certainly are uh, big divisions uh, across the uh, generations uh, just in terms of how people live their lives, what their expectations are, what they would like to see. The interesting thing is when you look at uh, millennials, they are more progressive in their political uh, views uh, than our older people. They actually value a more inclusive society uh, than uh, older people do. So it may be that some of the divisions that we see now, within 20 years, they may start to disappear um, because the demography of America is going to change very substantially by about 2044. If you add up the number of African Americans, Hispanics, and Asian Americans, they are going to constitute a majority. Young people don't really have a big problem uh, with that. They like uh, a diverse America. Older people have a big uh, problem with that. And so part of the conflict that we see today over race, over immigration and policy, and just the nature of our government policies in, in general, there is a big generational component. And so I think the next 10 to 20 years are probably going to be pretty contentious uh, politically, just as we deal with all these issues. But if we can get through the next one or two decades, you know, by 2040 and thereafter, things are going to calm down. Uh, we might actually end up in a very good uh, place and the country uh, may be uh, better off. But it could be a contentious process to get to 2040. I mean, I guess the question is, can the center hold, can the country hold together? That is the $64,000 question. The good news is more Americans still are in the center. Our politicians are no longer in the center. Uh, in my Divided Politics book, I have a chart looking at members of Congress from about the 1950s up through the current period. And if you go back to the 1950s, more than half of the members of Congress identified themselves as moderate they had moderate voting records. Uh, they voted with the other party on a, a regular basis. And, of course, over time, that has uh, completely changed. Today, less than 5% of the members of Congress are moderate or centrist in their voting uh, patterns. So at the leadership uh, level, our politicians have polarized in the sense that we have conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats and basically nothing in between. But the general public is still more moderate in its uh, inclinations. Uh, and so that offers some hope that even though there's a lot of contentiousness uh, now, the center could still hold just because of public opinion. The other thing that that holds it together, and, and perhaps is what's holding it together even now, 
is that we are in a pretty decent economy, although not for everybody, and, and the, div- the divide among groups is, is huge. But still, the fundamental economy is sound. Should we get to a point where that's not the case, you could see it really magnifying so many of these divisions. Exactly. And right now, you know, we have about a 4% national unemployment rate. So it is a a very strong economy for uh, most people. Uh, But you do have to wonder, like, what happens when the next recession takes place? What happens if we uh, end up in a really bad recession uh, with an 8 or 10% unemployment uh, rate? We know just... uh, even looking at our own recent history from uh, 10 years ago, that fuels a lot of anger. When people are worried about the economy, when they're not able to find uh, jobs, they get really upset. That's how we got the uh, Tea Party in uh, 2010 and big Republican gains, that they were able to tap into that voter anger, and uh, that definitely affected uh, the uh, election uh, at that uh, time. So we do have to worry of how the polarization could get worse if the economy uh, suffers uh, because there often is a tie between bad economies and strong populist reactions. What's the one thing that could happen, do you think, that would make matters even worse? Well, certainly a bad economy would be one of the uh, worst things that could happen. But I also think the geographic disparities uh, that we uh, talked about earlier are a big contributing factor And unfortunately now, when you look at future investments in the economy, like where the venture capital people are investing, it's something like uh, uh, more than three quarters of the venture capital money today is going to three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts. And so it's not being invested in uh, Nebraska or Iowa or Colorado. You know, it's going to uh, New York, uh, California, and uh, Massachusetts. And so some of the economic issues today that are fueling uh, this divide and, and creating the inequality and, and fueling the bad feelings that come out of that could actually get worse before it gets better. And finally, is there anything leaders can do to begin to address this in a, in a really fundamental way? I mean, I think the real solution on polarization, it's not going to be a top-down solution. Like, we cannot count on our leaders to bail us out. I really think it has to be a bottom-up solution where people in their individual lives decide they've had enough with the polarization and they just want a kind of a, a, a different approach. So at the end of the book, uh, one of my more radical suggestions, I call it, take a liberal or conservative to lunch. That basically, if you're liberal, find a conservative and talk with that person as well as uh, vice versa. And the idea is that on a one-to-one basis, people have to start reaching out to people who have different views. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to have a kumbaya moment at the end of that lunch where everybody's going to hug each other and everything's going to be wonderful, but people need to start that process of listening to other people, people who have uh, views and different from themselves. And if enough people do that over uh, the next few years, that would make a, a big difference in our uh, national political climate. Daryl West, his book is Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era. Daryl, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Jeff, thank you very much. Thank you.